0: I think that empathy is DEI and DEI is empathy. I think that if we're making an effort to truly engage and connect with people across difference, that is the, that's, that's understanding difference. That's understanding how to be more inclusive. That's understanding equity. If I'm listening to my colleague who has a different experience than me, then I know how to better engage
1: That person. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, president of Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. And this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube or at GoodMorningHR.com. One of my mantras is that success is built on luck, mindset, and skill, in that order. And throughout my life, I've been lucky to have encountered empathetic, compassionate people, teachers, family, friends, bosses, and clients who've seen me as an individual who brings unique gifts and challenges to every interaction. And I've tried, with varying levels of success, to model that in my interactions. In fact, one of Imperative's three core values is always work as one with compassion and respect. Over the last four years, empathy and compassion have loomed large in conversations around talent, attraction, and retention. Joining me today to discuss the importance of empathy in the workplace is my friend, Dr. Wendy Williams. Wendy is a professor in the Honors College at Texas Christian University. She teaches empathy, mindfulness, and literature to college students, and has published a number of articles and is the author of the nonfiction book *George Eliot, Poetess*. She also delivers training to help business leaders create high-trust work environments that attract and keep top talent and increase productivity and profits. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Wendy. Thanks, Mike. I'm so happy to be here. So first, I'd like to start with the subject of your book, which isn't HR related, but you wrote a book about George Eliot, and I haven't read it in years. But Middlemarch is really one of those impactful books that is worth revisiting. Um, Eliot has a way of making otherwise unsympathetic characters kind of sympathetic because you understand and empathize with how they got to where they are. And another book that's really similar to that that I really love is Maul Flanders. And you're watching her do her best in really bad circumstances. And she makes some not so wise decisions and you're pulling your hair out, but you under you know, the way Daniel Defoe wrote her, you understand how she got into the positions where she's making some of the decisions that she makes in those circumstances. So what do you think literature has to do has to teach us about empathy?
0: Mike, that's a great question. So I'm teaching Middlemarch right now, and I'm scared to teach Middlemarch to Gen Z students because it's such a big book. But every time I teach it, I see that the students can relate to this 19th century work of literature. And it is because George Eliot is a master of transporting readers into the minds of her characters. And you're, you're exactly right the characters that are unsavory, the ones that are very unlikable. She lets us inside those minds to see, okay, I kind of understand where this person is coming from. It's not okay what this person has done, but I sort of get it. So I think that that's the power of literature, great literature. And there's a lot of studies that have been done. There are some of them were controversial, but there are studies that have been done that show that people who read great literature, like Middlemarch, are more empathetic. So that is why I have followed her and studied her for all of these years and wrote my book on her.
1: So let's talk about that term empathy. What's your definition of, of empathy?
0: Mine is different than the average definition. So, They teach empathy at TCU to the honor students in upper division course, and we have a whole unit on defining empathy, and all of the disciplines define empathy differently. I suppose the most common understanding of empathy is stepping into someone else's shoes or taking someone else's perspective. I do not believe it is possible to do either of those things because my experiences, my identity, my world, my inner world are very different than everybody else's and so is yours. So I define empathy as perspective seeking rather than perspective taking. So it's the effort that counts. It's my desire to know who you are better. And I have to ask you good questions, open questions to understand and to really listen um, by using supportive versus shifting responses so that I can draw more out of you. So this is a lot of what I do in my trainings is to teach people those skills of developing connection and trust through empathetic listening.
1: And that's interesting because you always hear, you know, walk a mile in a, another man's shoes, but my feet are the wrong size to walk in that person's <laughs> shoes. And so I right. think what you're saying is yeah, we can you know, we can, we make a lot of assumptions when we, without asking questions, without really digging deep, we just assume, you know, okay, well, they're like that because of this and this. And so we feel like we've got that connection or we've got that, you know, and I think that's a big problem with a lot of hiring managers. They think they've got this unique insight into the human soul and they're, Without exploring it, making decisions about either how, who they select as employees or how they manage those employees, and they don't really understand, you know, they haven't taken the time to explore and try to at least understand why somebody sees the world the way they do and why they respond in certain circumstances the way they do.
0: Right. And people in the workplace are so busy. Who has time to sit down and have a one-on-one with an employee and get to know them? It's just the workday is so packed and to take that time just seems overwhelming. But it's absolutely necessary to make those connections and to make people feel valued, to make people feel like they have a sense of belonging to make them feel like they're part of a team, because without that, they're not gonna stay. (laughs) They're gonna find somewhere else. And especially Gen Z, my students, they want a different workplace than my generation or even the millennial generation wanted or expected. And so I think that they are really demanding a different kind of workplace and one that involves empathy.
1: So what role does compassion, which is part of one of our values, play in, in empathy?
0: So compassion is, um, you know, people, people interchange the words pity, sympathy, empathy, and compassion. And I like to, um, have my students or my organizational teams pay attention to the differences between these. I think that compassion is really defined as the, the work involved in relieving somebody else's suffering. So it may or may not involve understanding that person, but it involves doing something to make somebody feel better. So a lot of people might think of, um, you know, healthcare providers as being compassionate people because they are alleviating other people's suffering. Um, it, they don't necessarily need to understand where that other person is coming from to do that.
1: Interesting. Okay, and you mentioned pity. Where does pity fall in into that that uh, range? <laughs> pity, pity is at the very bottom of the <laughs> the pyramid of of understanding. It is
0: to feel sorry for someone, but not feel compelled to engage with them. So I might um, give an example of someone passing a person who's living in a homeless situation, and they might go, "Oof, that's 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 tough to be you. I hope you get what you need." That's pity. Sympathy, and again, everybody defines these terms differently. My definition of sympathy is to be affected by somebody else's emotional state, to feel for them. Maybe you don't do anything, but you feel for them. And then empathy, my definition of empathy is to understand or identify with somebody else's experience or state. And empathy can be cognitive or affective. Cognitive is, is um, understanding. And affective is feeling. So there are different kinds of empathy. Mm. And so all you know, I always say to my my teams and my students, you know, all of these definitions, they can get really murky because researchers are defining them differently across um, dis- disciplines. And I don't think it really matters. I think what matters is to take on the skills that are absolutely attainable and employing them on a day-to-day basis at work, at home. And that not only makes relationships better, but it alleviates personal distress as well.
1: So that that is so interesting. So now I, I'm going to have to rethink our value because I really think what I'm calling compassion is what you're calling empathy. And that's really what I want. Um, so, okay. That's so okay. My, you can call yeah, it what CDT. you want to every <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. But, it, but I think maybe it makes more sense to talk about it that way. Um, so over the pandemic and then all the heightened attention to race and class in the U.S. over the last four years, empathy has just really taken center stage. When we're in a crisis, whether it's a social crisis or a business or personal crisis, um, how can empathy help us in in these larger macro issues? So it's not just strictly interpersonal. Uh, navigate uh, those those kind of crises.
0: Well, I work more on inter with interpersonal relationships, mm-hmm. the one on one or the small groups, the teams. So what you're asking is really a big question. And there are some um, people like Paul Bloom who mm-hmm. would say, um, let's not even try to do empathy as we know it to be, because if we do that, then we're gonna be tribal and we're gonna have an us versus them mentality. And we're gonna care about people in our group and not care about people outside of our group. And that's that's a really good argument. Um, but I think also that, I think we can think about empathy more broadly as well. But I think that we do need to, step more toward compassion rather than the understanding part of empathy. Relieving the suffering of other people or other groups of people is something that I feel like we are duty-bound to do, and it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to understand them. So I think that during the pandemic and with all of the, the race issues, this was the first time that a lot of people had to think about and really face their own um, prejudices um, in a really painful way. And I think that that because this was so forefront in the news and in our lives, in discussions all around, we as a society had to um, think about empathy for other groups. I won't, I won't say for the first time, but for the first time in a long time perhaps. And I think that a lot of people who are in those disenfranchised groups Since have felt again just disenfranchised. So if we have a mentality of caring about people who are in groups that we're not in, I think that we can work together to make society better. But it's hard. It's hard to do that.
1: Yeah, for sure. And so inside of an organization, then maybe you know smaller scale. So we're not talking the the total macro environment. But inside my organization, we're in some sort of crises. Mm
0: -hmm. How does
1: you know, is empathy purely at that point a matter of interpersonal one-to-one, or can you, you know, you talk about building a, an, an organization, building empathy mm-hmm. into an organization. So how does empathy help with change management or, or you know, worst case scenario, crisis management mm-hmm. uh, in an organization?
0: Yes. So in my training, I talk about two different types of, of communication out of conflict communication and in conflict communication. And what I strive to do is help teams work together when there's no conflict present at all. And then if they're doing empathic listening and they're doing team building exercises and they're working to form connections, then there's a trust that's built if that trust isn't there there's very likely a toxic environment some level of a toxic environment and that can lead to crisis so ideally we build trust first and then we have some skills to work through conflict if i'm going into an organization and the con- the the culture is you know not what maybe the leadership wants it to be, then we have to kind of take a few steps backwards before we can address the conflict. Because we have to really build trust first before people are going to buy into even engaging the conflict.
1: So leadership, it's, so it's got to still start with leadership and that level of trust that that they've earned from their relationships with with the organ, with the rest of the organization,
0: ideally, yes, I do work with teams too. And um, mm-hmm. sometimes leadership doesn't buy in to the empathy. Sometimes empathy seems like a smushy term, and people don't know what to do with it, and they think it's going to make them appear weak. Uh, C- CEOs <laughs> oftentimes have a, a distance between themselves and the people who work for them because. They surround themselves with yes people, and there's mm-hmm. not anybody to tell them, hey, can you think about things from this perspective? <laughs> so sometimes there is a distance there that it, it, it's a gap that's hard to. To merge, so it, it is possible to in, to better a work environment um, with teams, especially if the middle managers are are on board. The middle managers are the reason that people leave usually. <laughs> um, so even if the the people at the in the C suite are not on board, it's still doable to have a team correct course correct or create the type of environment that they want to create. And it really is up to every single person on that team to work together to create the environment they want. So I go in, I have tools to give them, but they have to, they have to employ them.
1: So when I was younger in my, in my career, a long time ago, as far back as my internship, I, um, I really lacked empathy. Um, and in fact, to this day, I get a knot in my stomach. When I think about a time as an intern where I made my director's Administrative assistant cry. Mm. Uh, she had made a mistake multiple times, and I said something very unkind about it as a snotty-nosed twenty-year-old, and <laughs> and whatever else was going on in her life. That was the snapping point. She broke down, crying, and all that. I think I've grown since then, and <laughs> uh, you know, I've you know, I've had you know, I've had my rough patches in life. I've been married. I've been a parent. I've been an entrepreneur. So a lot of those thing, experiences have happened, but beyond just life experience, you're saying we can actually teach people to be empathetic and not have it feel like it's just going through the motions or, um, you know, play acting.
0: Yes, there's a lot of research on this idea of empathy, is it is it innate or is it learned? And the answer is yes, it's both. Some of us are born with a greater capacity and some with a lesser. And I try to impart the the, the idea that it's not better or worse to be anywhere on the empathy spectrum, unless, of course, you're a sociopath. That's not good. <laughs> but if you are born with a lesser degree of empathy, you can still attain skills to engage people in a way that's going to um, create a high trust environment, and if you have too much empathy, that's actually that can be problematic. So that can that can lead to compassion fatigue or empathic distress, and then you're not able to you know help anybody else under those circumstances. So yes, absolutely. I think that the probably the most important part of becoming empathetic. And by the way, Mike, thanks for sharing that story because everybody has plenty of stories like that, but we don't like to share that with other people, right? We, we like to think, we tend, in, in general, humans tend to think of themselves a little bit better than we actually are.
1: So I appreciate well, your I, vulnerability. I think I, still <laughs> su- I think I still suffer from that, just to be honest. My wife will tell you that, yeah.
0: Yeah, so vulnerability is key to empathy, and also so is mindset. And it, I think that it's really important to understand negativity bias and how we're hardwired to think negatively about other people for the purpose of Mm self-preservation we create these self-protective stories we have to we had to on the savannah we have to now and in those self-protective stories the other person is the perpetrator typically and we are the victim we magnify our own fault our own um our own uh, worthiness and we magnify their faults. So because we do this, it is hard to engage empathetically because we're too busy blaming the other person. So key to learning empathy is um, self-awareness, learning one's core values, core fears, coping strategies, understanding when those self-protective stories are coming in and making us think negatively about other people and then catching ourselves and go, "Hey." maybe I don't need to think this way, maybe I can think this other way. And so there are strategies to doing that. There's common humanity outlook, there's gratitude thinking, there's mindfulness, um, and my favorite benefit of the doubt, thinking. So if we can tune in to our own negativity when we're in those crises or conflicts, and then tune out and shift toward that other person, there's a better chance that we're gonna be able to engage the conversation in productive ways.
1: One of my uh, early and longtime coaches who's since passed away was a lady named Nancy Starr. And she, Nancy, would always say, whenever you engage in whether it's self doubt or a negative emotion about somebody else, stop and ask yourself, what else could be true? Mm-hmm. And and she said it enough times that it's hardwired now, and so I ask That's myself great. that, you know, probably several times a day because I can be an impatient person, and I, I, you know, I'm very Type A. I'm very, you know, results driven, very intuitive. So I see the answer before I even understand, you know, how to get from the problem to the answer. I just know what the and so when I'm working with my team or even clients sometimes. I'm, I'm like, you know, they're just being belligerent. Why don't they just, you know, just, and, and so I hear that, you know, you know, hear Nancy say, ask, you know, what else could be true? And that for me has been a transformative question to ask in my marriage with my kids um, and and certainly in business.
0: I love that. What else could be true? That is so, that's brilliant. That is that is giving somebody else the benefit of the doubt whether or not you understand where they where they're coming from i like to give the example of the person who cuts us off in traffic there's no way to know why that person did that we can think negatively toward that other person that they're just a jerk they don't care about anybody else or we can come up with what else could be true maybe that person is just having an awful day maybe they had a fight at home maybe they're rushing to the er who knows and we'll never know in that instance will we right. but if we say what else could be true and we give that other person the benefit of the doubt they're doing the best they can even if it's unacceptable they're doing the best they can and i'm going to just extend a little bit of grace in my mind toward that person it helps me doesn't it
1: right yeah why can't why do i want to carry all of this about somebody else yeah. and, you know yeah
0: yeah i think benefit of the doubt thinking is one of my favorite parts of empathy because it this is one thing that I've learned from this training that I do. It is I in my mind I thought I'm going to go in to these organizations and I'm going to help them fix their workplace culture. And I think I am. The data shows that it's working well, so, which is great. But um what I what I what really excites me is that I'm seeing personal suffering is being alleviated. When someone chooses to think the way that you just described, what else could be true? Or if said in, in the other way giving the benefit of the doubt it makes them feel better and so not only does it does it make me able to have the harder conversation but it also makes me feel better before i have that conversation so i can uh, i can have my my 10-year-old daughter might be yelling at me because she doesn't want to eat her vegetables and i can just shut her down and say i'm the parent eat your vegetables or you're not going to get to have dessert So with my daughter, I'm thinking you're being unreasonable and I'm just going to order you to do what I want you to do. But then if I say, okay, she's probably not just being a bratty kid just to be a bratty kid. I don't really know where she's coming from, but let me just take a moment to ask her, where are you coming from with this, this anger? And can we, you know, maybe put this conversation on pause for five minutes and come back to it when, when you feel a little bit cooler and then ask some questions what's going on in your world can you give me some more information and just pause to find out what's going on behind that bad behavior and then i can go okay i understand where you're coming from you're still going to eat your vegetables but let's compromise let's talk about you know how we can make this palatable for you or what you get afterwards or it, and then it becomes a conversation and it's not a digging in anymore
1: right well and i think that ties into you know, when you t- I, I talk to leaders and they, they don't want to have personal relationships or close connection with their employees because they're concerned that when they have to make a hard decision, a difficult decision, mm-hmm. um, that will interfere with that. That they, you know, either they won't have, you know, they'll, they'll look, uh, you know, it'll seem contradictory to their previous behavior. They'll look like hypocrites or it'll just be hard on them personally. To, to make the business decision that needs to be made.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think transparency is one of the things that all team members want and one of the things that leaders have to really think hard about how to do because it's not the case that you want to tell absolutely everything to everybody, um, but it's important to be transparent enough that people feel that
1: they're part of the decision-making. And let's take a quick break Good morning, HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. We're dedicated to helping risk-averse clients make well-informed decisions about the people they involve in their business. If you don't absolutely love your background screening partner, maybe you don't have confidence in the quality of the information they're providing you, maybe the reports take too long without a reasonable explanation, or when you get a report, you have to Google stuff to figure out what they're talking about. Or maybe their customer service is just not what you deserve. If any or all of that sounds familiar, we'd love to help you explore your options. We're here to help at imperativeinfo.com. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for three quarters of a recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 120 and enter the keyword, you guessed it, empathy. That's E-M-P-A-T-H-Y. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, check out the webinars page at comparativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Dr. Wendy Williams. So you mentioned Gen Z earlier and, uh, and your current students. And what their expectations are um, of what they want want what they really want in the workplace. Um, what are they telling you? Well, first, tell me how the students have changed as students. How are they different today than they were five years, ten years ago? And then, what is their expectation of the workplace? Maybe that'll give us a an on ramp.
0: Yeah, so I remember a day that I was teaching a class called College Life and Identity, and I had the students reading a, an article and we were discussing it and they were unusually quiet. And I said to them, Can you all check in with me what is, you know, what's causing you not to engage this material like usual? And it occurred to me, I said, Do you not do you not r- relate to this millennial information and how millennials and Gen X interact? Mm-hmm. And they said no, and I said you're not millennials, are you? <laughs> they <laughs> said no, we're Gen Z, and I said I just watched an entire generation pass through my classroom. I feel old.
1: <laughs> Tell me. So, so
0: first of all, it, it didn't it didn't occur to me how they were different, but it has since. And what I've noticed is they are more anxious, much more anxious. They are they grew up with Gen X, our Generation helicopter parenting or lawnmower parenting and figuring things out for them, and so their coping skills are a little bit less than maybe if we had thrown them out into the world and let them ride the bikes in their bikes in the neighborhood like we did. Right. And I'm guilty. I am guilty of this too. I am just like all the other parents who are overprotective, driving my kids everywhere, and worrying about their well being. And so I think that the ki- that kids gen Gen Z, I shouldn't say kids, my students aren't kids, but Gen Z students and workers, they are a little bit less resilient. So that that's a little bit of a negative, but I wouldn't say that they're entitled. People keep saying, a lot of people like to say that they're entitled and selfish. I don't think that's the case. This is the most civic-minded generation that I've Come across. They're super savvy. They're very intelligent. They are creative. And really, maybe the most salient uh, aspect is they really want to make a difference in the world. They want to make the world better. They want their values to match the values of the workplace. They want to know that their skills, their purpose, their passions match that of the organization and that, that they're purposeful, that they're they're a part of something really meaningful. Our generation wasn't quite like that. We just wanted to get a job and, you know, maybe have a family and and live a nice life. And I mean, I'm speaking for a whole generation, but I think, you know, this is sort of the trend, I think. So greater anxiety, a little bit lesser resilience, but um, much better at civic engagement, caring about the purpose of the world and how they fit into that.
1: And that civic engagement, that uh, that that seeking justice in the workplace, that kind of stuff, that mm-hmm. all ties right back to that compassion, that empathy that that you were talking about. So, do you think that generation inherently has more empathy, uh, or do they tend to have um, more more compassion, or, or, or you know what is? If you're going to compare our generation, Gen X, you know, we were supposed to be the slackers eating pizza and, and, and smoking weed until we were 50. And uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, the, uh, you know, but, you know, we didn't really uh, engage as much uh, with, you know, didn't, we didn't think about is there a social mission behind the work that I'm doing for the most part, those kind of things. So where do you see that? Is it more empathetic or is it something else? That's a
0: good question. I'm not sure that I know the answer to that. I think that on an interpersonal level, they are no better or worse than other generations. I think on a global level, they probably are better, whether we call it empathy, compassion, or whatever, caring about the bigger picture. And I think that part of that comes from just caring about the earth itself and knowing that it's their responsibility (laughs) Mm -hmm. to clean up our mess. So I think that maybe that's the reason that they're more civic minded. I don't, I'm not really sure.
1: That's interesting. And, you know, since George Floyd's murder on May 25th of 2020, there's, you know, there's been a whole renewed interest in, in DEI. And we've covered it here several times. Uh, the, um, a lot of the DEI efforts that corporations have attempted have just not worked. They've, you know, they just flat, you know, a lot of them were just strictly performative to start with. Uh, and, uh, but it seems to me that empathy would really be, you know, empathy skills would be really be a difference maker in in an organization's ability to uh, truly you know, build belonging and exclude uh, inclusion inside the organization.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, I know that DER is uh, DEI is a charged um, term these days, and I think that the the thought behind DEI was really important and necessary. And I'm not sure why there is um, such negativity around it. I think it's really important that we all have DEI training i think that a lot of people have felt a finger wagging and when it comes to DEI training and they've been made to feel guilty whether whether that's right or wrong that they should feel guilty
1: right
0: i think that i think that empathy is DEI and DEI is empathy i think that if we're making an effort to truly engage and connect with people across difference that is, the, that's, that's understanding difference. That's understanding how to be more inclusive. That's understanding equity. If I'm listening to my colleague who has a different experience than me, then I know how to better engage that person. And if I'm just sitting and t- someone's telling me what I need to be doing differently, then I'm going to feel chastised, per- perhaps. So, not that all DEI training is bad. It certainly isn't. I've had um, some DEI training that was very informative. But I think that the most important thing is for us to make an effort and to care about people who are different from us.
1: Yeah. And I think that there are a lot of people who do care, but um, haven't been really given the tools to to make a difference. And I think the kind of training you're talking about. Um, and so let's talk through some of the skills that when you're working with a team, what are those skills? You know, uh, it certainly sounds like asking good questions and I'd -hmm. like to explore that a little bit, but what other skills too, but you know, do, do, does a team or a leader really need in order to really achieve, you know, the enlightenment of, of empathy?
0: Yeah. So I have a three-part training. And the first part is the what and why of empathy. And there's a lot of research, but it's not boring. People are scared of research, but it's really important to understand the why, right? Especially for leaders. If if they don't understand that people are leaving for a certain reason, they're not going to know how to change that. And retention is a big issue, I know, in organizations, So the first part is the what and the why of empathy, and the second part is the mindset that we've talked about. So if I can tune in to what's going on in my own mind and then tune out or turn out toward other people, then I'm ready for the skills, the really practical skills. And the third third of the training is practical skills, and it's all about communication. So first, we do communication out of conflict, and that's all about asking questions and how to answer and how to listen. Truly listening. Listening is probably the most important part of empathy. What we love to do, especially those of us who uh, value our own intelligence and think we have important things to say, we will be thinking of the response that we want to say rather than truly listening to that other person this is just one example. I mentioned support versus shift responses earlier. We tend to want to empathize by saying, oh, if it were me, or, oh, if I were you, I would. And it's it sounds like empathy, right? right? But it's false empathy. And it's coming from a good place. People are trying to relate, but actually we're taking the spotlight off of them and putting it on us. And we're so trying to solve
1: their problem yeah, yes, rather than fixing. understand. Yeah.
0: Exactly. We're trying to fix the problem, right? When really listening is, is the best way to make another person feel heard and understood. And sometimes the problem can't be solved by us or at all. But if we let that other person know, hey, I hear you. I'm listening to you. I care about you. That goes a long way. So that's listening out of, of um, conflict and really connecting. And we talk a lot about communication killers. What are those communication killers? Minimizing somebody else's experience, interrupting, thinking of your own ideas, avoiding or advising or fixing. These are examples of communication killers. So we avoid those. And then when we have developed good relationships, then we're ready for the conflict that comes. And so the conflict that comes, um, We do active listening, which is clarify, reflect, validate, which is nothing new, but we practice it in the work setting. And it seems it seems basic, but it's not super easy to do all the time, especially when your emotions are charged. When we're in conflict, our bodies are in a different state, right? Our amygdala is hard at work. Our heartbeat is racing. So we talk about how to kind of bring that down before we meticulously work through the steps of active listening. The very last step of active listening is sharing and solving. So I'm going to understand where you're coming from through questions, clarifying questions, reflecting and validating before I'm going to say my piece at all. And then when it's time for me to say my piece, I'm going to use what I call problem-solving language. And that means I'm going to use I statements instead of you statements. I'm going to say could instead of should. I'm going to say and instead of but. I'm going to um, be specific and clear rather than vague and unclear. So there's a list of things that I'm going to, just basic skills that I'm going to remember because I've practiced them in training. And then when it it comes down to it, then I'm ready for that actual event to take place. So they're very practical skills.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. One of the things that I've trained myself to do or been trained by experience, I think, and good coaching is to end that conversation after this person has explained where they're coming from, what their challenge really is. Maybe I'm asking questions that peel the onion a little bit and get deeper into what's going on. And then before I offer a solution, because that's what I'm hardwired to do. I mean, I'm, I just want to saw, you know, the reason I'm an entrepreneur is because I wanted to solve people's problems. I, I just, I get that one of my personal values is earned appreciation. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I write it right there and it sounds so vain because you know, I want, you know, the, but I want to, you know, I want, you know, I want to solve people's problems. But one of the things I've learned to ask before I start jumping in there is what, what can I give right now that would be helpful in this? Mm-hmm. What would be helpful to you? And let them say what sometimes they just I've been married 27 years in January. I I've learned that, that my job is not to solve the problems. Often my job is to hear, make sure that my lovely wife uh, is is you know, feels like she's been heard and mm-hmm. um, and maybe that's all she needs. Maybe she, you know, maybe she needs me to ask some questions gently that that you know help her better understand her circumstances. Um, nine times out of 10, what she doesn't want is, well, here's what you should do. You know? uh, And I, uh, you know, I have to bite my tongue often because it's so hardwired in me, but if I can say, what do you need from me right now? That, you know, that gives them the opportunity to, to, you know, to tell me what they want and how I, how I, how they'd like me to help.
0: Absolutely. Good questions are so important. and, asking a question like, what can I do, is just wide open. Open questions rather than closed questions are great. Questions that invite as much information, clarifying information, great. Questions that don't invite a, I'm fine, or yes or no, those are great. So the one that you've offered is an excellent question. In the workplace, what can I do to make me better to work with? What can I stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? How can I support you? What can I do for you? Tell me, tell me about what's going on in your life, in this work life, not necessarily mm-hmm. your personal life, sure. what's going on in your, in your work life that is challenging. These are great open questions that will lead to the information that we need to support other people.
1: Yeah, even in performance discussions. The the the, the question that I, I coach the leaders who report to me to work when they're working with their teams is is okay, so here's the mm-hmm. performance expectations. So let's reset those. Great. What do you need from us to help you achieve those? And it's still on you. I'm you know, you're not gonna screw the monkey on my back. I'm not gonna do your work for you, but if there's something that you need that we can provide, we'll we'll do it. I mean, our you know, my leader's job is to make their team successful, right? And so if it's, if it's within budget and it's reasonable and all of that, and it will truly be impactful, that's what we want. But if, if, even if it's the same thing that the manager or the supervisor would have said, if the employee asked for it, they came out, it came out of their mouth. I think it's more meaningful. And when they're provided that it, it doesn't feel like, uh, it doesn't take away their agency. They asked mm-hmm. for it and we gave it to them rather than defining the, the solution for them.
0: Absolutely. I was, the word empowering was in my mind as you were saying that um, it is empowering to be able to say, this is what I need. And to have that need met by leadership, it, it, it makes people feel like, oh, I have some power. I have some agency. I matter. They've listened to me. It's very powerful.
1: This conversation ties in really well with a, an episode we did a couple months ago with Monica Guzman. Are you familiar with her book, uh, Curious no. Conversations? Uh, oh yes. And so yes. I'm going to I'm going to tie those together in the notes. But um, I, you know, we're out of time. But I really do appreciate you joining us today, Wendy.
0: This has been such a pleasure. Thank you, Mike.
1: And thank you for listening. You can comment on this episode or search our previous episodes at GoodMorningHR.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and you can reach him at RobMakesPods.com. And thank you to Imperatives Marketing Coordinator, Marianne Hernandez, who keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey. As always... Don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good and keep your chin up.